I've been doing a quick three-part series. This is the last of three parts. Trying to capture some of the vision for Scum of the Earth, and in typical Mike Sears nonlinear fashion, if you're trying to predict what I'm going to say, you're in trouble. Um, except if you've figured out that I've been using names from old, like 1960s and 70s songs to mess up the title. So today's title is The Subterranean Homesick Blues. I'm sorry, Subfirmament Homesick Blues. You guys know what subterranean means, right? It means underground. Subfirmament means like under heaven. Get it? Okay. And as, uh, thank you for that. Yeah, so the subfirmament homesick blues. And I've been trying to, to marry a 1960s, 70s rock song or folk song title along with a quote by C.S. Lewis. Um, because that's the way my mind works. And I think I'll go ahead and read it to you now. It comes from the final installment in the Chronicles of Narnia series, a book called The Last Battle. And where is that quote? Okay, there it is. At the very, very end of the Narnian books, okay, this is a spoiler for all you guys who ever read it in the past 60 years, okay? Um, Narnia is destroyed, okay? Yeah, I'm sorry, it is. <laughs> Narnia is destroyed not by flood, not by fire, but by ice. It's kind of a Norse end of the world, you know? And so all your favorite characters die, and um, they find themselves inside this little shack, and it's kind of like an onion, uh, except like everything has layers, except it gets bigger as you, as you go in, you know? So they start out in this little shack, and then next thing you know, they in this open field, and Things get bigger, and this is what happens. Suddenly, Farsight, the eagle, spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled around, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. The eagle is right, said Lord Diggory. Now, Diggory is the character from the magician's nephew. Remember him? Little tiny guy became the old professor with the wardrobe. Remember that? And this is him in the last book. He shows up again. That was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn. All of the old Narnia that mattered has been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. The unicorn summed it up. He cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. 
I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come farther up. Come farther in. And so they start this mad dash across the fields and up the hills into the mountains, and the farther they get, the bigger it seems. And it's obviously C.S. Lewis's picture of the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, we're in what C.S. Lewis would call the Shadowlands. The Shadowlands are those places that kind of seem real, but they're not really real, as real as the home we're going to. Hence my title, The Subfirmament Homesick Blues. Um, I'm kind of talking about the gospel of homesickness today. There's a gospel of homesickness. Blessed are you. If you're homesick, happy are you if you're homesick for the real country, for the real Rocky Mountains, for the real church? Happy are you? Happy are you if you're striving to make it home, if you're homesick here on this earth, underneath the heaven? You're happy, you're blessed if you're homesick. If you're uncomfortable here at church, and I know this means scum with your church, but I mean if you're comfortable in, uncomfortable in any church, then you're blessed because you have the subfirmament homesick blues. If the friendships here at church and with people that you love here are okay, but they could be better, then you're blessed because you have the homesick blues. If the worship down here is good, but you're longing for it to be great, then you're blessed because you have the homesick blues. If you find life in this church too difficult, it's too hard to love the people who are at scum because they're all so messed up, or it's too difficult to live in community with these folks, then you're blessed because you have the homesick blues. If you're not satisfied with the way that you're loving God and the way that you're walking with him, the way that you're living your life, if you're not satisfied, then you're blessed because you have the homesick blues. And so my challenge to us as a church is to go farther up and to go farther in. Until that day, when we run that race with new eyes and new bodies that never get tired of finding out the infinite greatness of God and the beauty of his bride, the church. I was in Philippians last week, chapter 2, And last week, if you remember, my title was Don't Try So Hard to Be Like Jesus. Remember that? I'm sure that'll get a lot of questions from people on the internet. I'm positive of it. But today, I want to kind of take the other tension today. Today, I'm going to almost say what sounds like the opposite. It's not the opposite, but it's going to sound like it if you didn't pay attention last week to what I was saying. 
Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. The Apostle Paul was speaking to people in Philippi again, and it'll be up on the board over there. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Not that I have already attained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Sometimes you'll hear me say things like, I'm hoping to apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. That's where I get that paraphrase. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take a view of things, such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So let's think about the Apostle Paul's background for just a second. Do you remember, was he one of those guys who was actively pursuing Jesus, one of the 12 disciples following him from town to town? Remember that? Is that somewhere in the Gospels? You know, he ran the bait shop that the fishermen went to on Lake Galilee. No, that's not it at all. The Apostle Paul was a religious leader, a Pharisee, a man of great learning, great intellect, immense zeal who was actively persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, trying to wipe it out before it infected the religion, Judaism, that he loves so much. And so Jesus appears to him, knocks him off his ass, basically. That's his donkey, folks. Knocks him off his donkey into the dust on the dirt road going to Damascus. Strikes him blind and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, Saul, who later became Paul, had no idea who was talking to him and said, well, who is it, Lord? And it says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Well, that must have been revelation for Paul on a couple different levels. First of all, he thought that Jesus was dead and that the resurrection was a hoax that was being put on by his followers so they could start a new religion. You know, those are old ideas. Nobody thinks those anymore, right? Anyway, that's a joke, people, really, honestly. So people still think that. But he has his radical conversion experience. I mean, he is apprehended. He was taken hold of. I mean, it's like Jesus grabbed him when he was on that donkey and threw him off and said, down boy, now listen to what i got to say to you. You're going to be an apostle of the Gentiles, and if you think you've had it tough now, you wait until you see what you got to suffer for my sake. And so Paul has this tremendous, tremendous conversion experience. And what we have here now is Paul reciprocating. He is 
trying to take hold of Jesus. He is striving. He is pressing on. He's like an athlete in a race. He is like a soldier on a march. He is doing everything he can to grab a hold of that for which Jesus Christ has grabbed a hold of him. Does that sound like he's not trying hard? I think he's trying extremely hard to be true in his pursuit of Jesus. And honestly, honestly, I am no apologies in seemingly saying the opposite of what I said last week because I'm not. We need to pursue Jesus individually and corporately as a people of God in the same manner that the Apostle Paul did. Verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Brothers and sisters would be a better way of saying that. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, he presses on. Now, this is interesting because I'm not so sure that he's just trying to leave behind all of his misdeeds when he was a Pharisee all of his Jewishness. He's not leaving that behind. I think what he's talking about is all the stuff he's done for Jesus Christ up to this point. It's like, big deal. God will not allow himself to be painted for the ages to see. He will not allow himself to be painted once and for all in our lives so we know what he looks like, what he acts like, what he thinks like, what he speaks. As C.S. Lewis would say, God is the great iconoclast. Iconoclast is somebody who breaks icons, smashes icons. Believe it or not, that was one of the names for scum of the earth on the flip chart as a possible name for us when we started, the iconoclasts. This had too many syllables, I think. (laughs) This is what C.S. Lewis says in A Grief Observed. Images of the holy easily become holy images. They become sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. God shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? In other words, if you think you've got God in the box, you know how he acts, you know how he thinks, you know how he speaks, you know how he wants you to treat people all the time, forever, then you know what? Maybe his presence is not with you as much as you think it was. Because the mark of God's being with us is that he continually remakes the image that we give him into a more perfect idea of what he's like. C.S. Lewis says that the incarnation is a supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. I'm not going to go into the 
history on that, but let's just say that the Jews were not expecting the Messiah to be born in a stable from some blue-collar types. They weren't peasants, okay? Joseph was not a peasant. I mean, he wasn't rich, he wasn't middle class, but he had an occupation. He wasn't royalty either, which is what the Jews expected. He says, most are offended by the iconoclasm of the Messiah in ruins. Blessed are those who are not. But the same thing, he says, happens in our private prayers. Now here is C.S. Lewis talking about this in the wake of his wife's death. I mean, this is truth that has not come easily to him. God is once again breaking the image that C.S. Lewis had of him. In the aftermath of his beloved wife's death from cancer. God is the great iconoclast. What we think perfectly today will be imperfect tomorrow. So let's leave these things behind. Let's leave scum of the earth's coolness and hipness behind. Any of the victories that we have had, quote-unquote, spiritually, Let's leave those behind. Let's strain toward what is ahead. I mean, God's given us this building miraculously. We could never have afforded this thing. All right? We cannot rest on our laurels here. God will shatter the image that we have of him if we are continuing to follow him, if we are serious about being homesick, about constantly striving toward who he is. We don't know the future at all. We have no idea what the future holds for scum of the earth, but we know who holds it, don't we? We have lost, in terms of staff, most recently, Joshua Cook, before him, Joshua and Leanne Dillon, who are off doing itinerant ministry, and then Tim Dunbar before those guys in the last eight and a half months. And you're thinking, if you're me, God, what are you doing? But you know what? I got to leave that stuff behind and press toward what is ahead. I cannot be satisfied with home here on earth the way I want it. I should continually strive to be homesick. There's a gospel of homesickness that I need to embrace and realize I'm not going to be happy. If you think of this life as a place meant for our happiness, you'll find it intolerable. If you think of this life as a place of correction and learning, then it's not so bad. C.S. Lewis also said. And then there's a goal here, even along the way, that will be mature, right? But maybe not perfect. 
All of us who are mature should take a view of such a view of things, right? And if on some point you think differently, then God will make it clear to you. So what this is telling me is, is that different understandings of maturity may be allowed by God in his church. <laughs> that maybe I will never quite get it right. That I will always be stretched. That the church will continually frustrate me when there are certain people in leadership who think they know what's going on and I think they're wrong. I mean, expect it. Expect it. All right. So I made up a word today. I was trying to think of what is the antonym for homesick? I looked up, you know, I went to thesaurus.com and there's nothing close to what I wanted. Nothing close. Homesick. What's the opposite of homesick? Home smug. That's what the opposite of homesick is. Home smug. And so I thought, what are the dangers of being home smug? And how do you get there? What are the causes of home smugness? So here we are at Scum, right? We're approaching our 10th birthday. Do you guys know there's an 11-year church plant rule out there? The Church Planners Toolkit, very famous book for church planners. The author, I can't remember his name right now, Bob Thompson or something, I don't know what it is. Forgive me, whoever the author is, if you listen to this online. But, you know, just forget who wrote my book and we'll be even. So, there's an 11-year rule that says, basically, that by the time a church plant reaches 11 years, it is totally lost its outreach orientation, that it now exists almost solely for its members. That's why I'm doing this vision thing, because I see it coming. Now, let me explain something to you. I am not trying to go back to what scum was 10 years ago. You heard that the first week. That's not what I meant. Might have been a problem with me communicating. I'm not trying to go backwards. I'm trying to regain some of the passion that we had for reaching out to people who didn't know what the heck was going on with their spiritual lives, their physical lives, their emotional lives, their relational lives, their financial lives, any part of their lives. That Jesus came to save sinners, you know, of whom I'm the worst. I mean, I believe that Jesus came and that He wants scum of the earth to proclaim that to people who have never heard that good news before. At the same time, when we first started, the church drove me crazy with its worldliness, with its lack of commitment to Jesus, with its ability to be home smug in a culture that it was destroying them. And so... God, by his faithfulness, brought people along who, you know, began small groups and started women's ministry and men's ministries and all sorts of stuff that were kind of inwardly focused. 
You know, Jim and Amy Croft came and did the marriage small group, like time after time after time, and I'm going, thank you, Lord, because I am getting ill watching my flock hurt itself month after month after month. So I'm all for being somewhat turned inward and taking care of our own. I mean, if you're not in a small group, join one. Let me explain something. Sunday night is like dessert, okay? It's not the main course. The main course is to be had day in, day out, as you interact with people that you meet here who are believers. You have these holy conversations during the week. You practice these spiritual disciplines of engagement in terms of fellowship and worship and service and all those kind of great things I'm going to talk about in just a little bit. But we can't just stop there. We have to remain focused on what Jesus has called us to, and that is to spread the good news that he's come to liberate people, particularly for us, the left out and the right-brained. I think there's a spiritual pride that creeps in. And at Scum of the Earth, I think we're susceptible to this kind of very backhanded spiritual pride. It's not the kind of spiritual pride that you would get, let's say, if you went to a suburban megachurch. That's a whole obvious kind of spiritual pride, I think, at least to me. The spiritual pride we have is in being the left out. It's in being the iconoclast. It's in being the ones who are downtown and not in the burbs. It's in being the ones who are of lower economic resource. Therefore, you know, blessed are the poor for, you know, Jesus likes us better than he likes you guys. And, you know, um, and we know the difference between really good music and cheesy Christian pap. We know the difference between all that stuff. So there's a kind of a spiritual pride that sets in that we need to be aware of that will drag us into home smugness, all right? And then I would say another big one is unconfessed sin. You know, it may be like the cancer for scum of the earth's church body, unconfessed sin. Now, I'm not even talking about sin you repented of. I'm just talking about the sin that you're in that nobody knows about. I think that unconfessed sin could begin eating away at this body of believers and is one of the causes of spiritual home smugness. What are the consequences? What are the consequences of home smugness? I think the consequences are that we could become just like every other church we despise in the love of Jesus. That didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. <laughs> I'm sorry. What I mean to say is, there's those things that you hate 
about Christianity when you turn the television on? No? Or when you listen to the radio or um, whatever? And, and, and those things, we could become. It's the spiritual principle, like what goes around comes around. No, that's not in the Bible. Um, as you judge, so shall you be judged. Forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. Does this sound familiar now? The consequences of spiritual homesmugness are that we could become that which we despise. I have a page or a copy of a page from Jesse Hallman's journal from 2005. This is what he said. The mainstream isn't the best. The mainstream, the status quo, the American dream, North American church, the magazines, the media, the inside, at their best are not the best. At worst, they're misleading, demeaning, inhuman, inhumane, heartless, lifeless, robotic, without integrity whatsoever. We don't know what is best most times. But the times we do, it's because we know what Jesus says about it. Jesus is firmly and staunchly outside the box of life as we know it thus far. But not because he decided to be there, no, because he is most truly holy. That's just where he stands. We know he's perfect supremely and even better than perfect. And we know that what he did and what he said is confounding to the current establishment of this world. That's homesickness, folks, right there. That's what I'm talking about. I don't want to suffer the consequences of being home smug. We could become that which we despise. Trust me, we could. We already are doing it. Just look at our lives. The cures of for home smugness, for being home smug. The only real cure that I have is this thing that I call shift. Shift. The ability to shift. This is the way I look at it. You and I are following Jesus. We're on the path of life. We're headed up the mountain. It's wonderful. We've left the old life behind. We're doing well. We're going to a small group. We're learning the Bible. We're memorizing scripture. We're having our devotions in the morning. We're, we're, we've got a relationship with God that's actually percolating. I have friends who are Christians that I, that I talk to about things, and, 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 and I even share the faith that I have in, in a very real, genuine way with people at work and at school and those kind of places. So, you know, you're doing well. And if you're like that here at SCUM, you've been around for several years, you're probably one of those people. You're doing okay compared to what you were doing several years ago. You found a home. Praise God. And then 
You're watching Jesus up ahead of you on the path. He's like the trail guide. And you can see the path go up this way, up the mountain, and Jesus takes a left turn. And you're thinking, what? Jesus, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Look at this. We're doing great over here. And you're taking a left-hand turn. I can't even see you right now. Where are you going? Well, Jesus has shifted. He shifted. He's taking a shortcut. It might be more difficult, but it's a shortcut. You see this in the Narnia books all the time. Aslan's always doing this. He's always taking a left turn. I think that was Prince Caspian. And they screwed that up in the movie pretty bad. Should have done it better. But that's what I mean by shift. The ability to, to be on the right path and then move with Jesus to a better path. I'm going to tell a story on... Mr. Roper, I know it's okay because you already said yes to it because it's in the book. But we had just started Scum of the Earth. It was the very first Sunday night. We were in a coffee shop over off Colfax on Marion Street. Um, about 25 people or so sitting on the floor. Deva, Yoder, and Chris Baker were playing their guitars, leading worship. And for me, it was like, oh, gosh, this is deja vu. This is awesome. This is like me being back in the Jesus movement in the 1970s. I'm leading my Young Life Club, and, you know, the spirit is there. It's, it's terrific. I mean, I'm feeling it, all right? And so then it's my turn to speak, and I didn't know whether to stand up or sit down, so I think I stood up. I started talking, and I gave the sermon. We sang some more songs and called it quits for the evening, and then Reese and I were going to get together later on that week for coffee to debrief about our very first Scum of the Earth church service. And we get together, I'm feeling awesome. And Reese says, what happened to you? And I said, what do you mean what happened to me? He said, you sounded like you were preaching about my mom's church or something. He goes, I like Mike. I like it when you talk to me like when we're having coffee, but I don't know who that guy was on Sunday night. I'm going, what? He's going, Mike, look, I'm not asking you to get tattoos or to pierce your ears or to dye your hair or to do anything like that. I want the real you. I don't know who you were trying to be. And I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea what I just got done doing. But I sensed a shift in the way that the Lord wanted me to act as pastor of scum of the earth. It was as if I had been calcified in this Presbyterian church environment I was in for several years. Or the seminary had done some kind of a quick freeze, flash freezing thing on me, and I needed to just get back in touch, you know, using all that stuff that I had learned, like I did at coffee. 
That's a shift. Doing the right thing, obviously, but there's a better way. And so what I want us to do as a congregation is, look, you may be doing great right now, but is Jesus asking you to take a better way than the one you're taking now, even though you're on a pretty good path? I don't know the answer to that question for you individually. I would suggest that if you have a notion that maybe a shift is occurring in your life, that you would talk to somebody about it. But shifts like this have occurred throughout church history, honestly. I know that there was a time in the English church when they only would sing these metrical versions of the Psalms. So you would get out your Bible, and they had somehow figured out how they could sing all the psalms. And that was the music for the church. Young Isaac Watts was bored. And after church one day, he told his dad, how come we can't sing something that speaks about the glories of a risen Christ? Because obviously the psalms were written a thousand years before Jesus, right? We're not talking about his resurrection so much. And so his dad looked at him, you know, maybe with a twinkle in his eye, and said, well, why don't, Isaac, why don't you see what you can do to mend the matter? And so Isaac wrote his very first hymn, which was, I think, Behold the Glories of the Lamb, I think was the name of that. He went on to write hundreds of hymns. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, was that one of them? and others that you know we sing today here at Scum of the Earth, hundreds of years ago. Now, this is a shift, right? Not just for Isaac and his family, but for the church, because as churches picked up this idea, let's, let's try this. Well, all sorts of problems happened. I mean, churches began to split over the worship music. Crazy idea, I know. Hard to believe. That worship music styles could really divide a church, but they did. Pastors were fired for singing what they called Watts' Flights of Fancy. So, a warning. Just because you shift to follow Jesus doesn't mean the way won't get difficult. Aslan was really, really good at taking difficult shortcuts for the Pevensey children to follow. Scum of the earth is on the verge of a shift. How, can, how do I know these things? Well, we got a building. That's one. Number two, we just lost three of our best staff people. Four, if you count Leanne, who hadn't been around that long. All within the span of eight months. Scum's starting to look different than it ever has before. These are just minor clues that we're on the verge of a shift. We need to press on. We need to strive to take hold of that for which we have been apprehended. We need to follow Jesus. One of the cures for home smugness is the ability to shift. Do you have that personally, and do we have that as a body? One of the things I want to talk about, and I think are really important in terms of the ability to shift, and I'm not going to go into these very, very deep because we actually have classes on this, or we'll have classes on it again, 
The spiritual disciplines, I think, are something I would like to see practice a whole lot more in the lives of individual scum of the earth church people. And there's two basic categories, according to Dallas Willard. I think they're good categories. One category is called disciplines of abstinence, and one category is called disciplines of engagement. Disciplines of abstinence would be these kind of disciplines. Um, Fasting. You're abstaining from food for the purpose of getting closer to God. Meditation. You're going into silence or solitude. You don't speak or you get to be alone. You are throwing yourself from the world around you in order to get closer to Christ. Those are some of the disciplines of abstinence. And there's disciplines of engagement. One of those may be worship. And I don't mean necessarily coming to scum on a Sunday night and waiting for Genevieve to strike up the band. I mean worshiping alone, even in your bedroom or with one other person in your small group, and worshiping God. Like, what does that mean? How do you do that? How do you praise him? And worship is, is that's part of worship, but there's all sorts of, of ways. Uh, service would be another discipline of engagement to, um, to come and, and help clean up on October the 10th here at SCUM. Discipline of service. There's disciplines of fellowship, getting together to have spiritual conversations. I mean, intentionally getting together to talk about the things of God. These are disciplines of engagement. These are the kind of, this is honestly, the reason that we typically have as one of our three core classes, uh, a class on the spiritual disciplines is for this reason. I honestly felt like God cornered me one day and said, Mike, I'm going to give you people for a span of time. And when they're done with that span of time, will they have left scum better than when they came? Will they be more apt to continue on in the faith than they would have if they'd never come to scum? Would they have a deeper sense of camaraderie with the body? Would they have a better idea of the scriptures? Would they understand what it means to pray more than they did before they came? So we start those back up here in the future. You may want to take advantage of those. If not, I really beg you to take part in the small groups and begin to get a taste of that. Finally, I want to encourage you to stay homesick. Please don't ever be content at Scum of the Earth Church because Scum of the Earth Church is not heaven. It's not even the church cosmic. I mean, we're just a little tiny slice. But don't ever be content here. I want to call you to go farther up and farther in, not just individually as a 
believer and follower of Jesus, but, but corporately together as a body, we would continue to do those things and become the people of God, the body, the church corporate that God wants us to be. What's he want us to be? As a body, I think one of the things he wants us to be is a stumbling block to the rest of the church. Hear me on this. Without being spiritually proud, I honestly think that one of Scum's reasons for existence is to kind of stick it to the rest of the church body. We're like the hangnail in the body of Christ. I don't know what we are. (laughs) The very fact that we're names come of the earth gets the very first reactions. Like, how could you call yourselves that? And our reaction ought to be corporately, how can you not? I don't want to lose that calling. I'm not content with just being a normal church. I mean, if God wants us to be some kind of prophetic object lesson for the church at large, then Lord, bring it on. And all the difficulties that go with that. I hope you're in it with me for the long haul. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for those brave people who were homesick enough to imagine a place where the left out and the right brain could find a spiritual home. Lord, never let us become smug about that. But keep us pressing on, keep us striving, ever attempting to apprehend that for which we've been apprehended in Jesus' name.